Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Consultant virologist Dr. Chris Smith joins us. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm very good, Kim. How are you? Very well. Now, New Zealand is about to become perhaps the first country in the world to have been affected by COVID-19 and to have eliminated all active cases. But elsewhere, and maybe here, I don't know, there are fears of a second wave. How and why would that happen? Right. Well, when you have an infection and you get people infected with it, and then people react to it, and they put in place various steps to stop or curtail the spread, then the numbers start to fall. And that's exactly what we've seen with lockdowns and things, because when you do a lockdown, you retract from the virus the opportunities that were previously there that enabled it to spread. Because what this relies on as an acute infection is being able to go from one person to the next to the next, because once you've had it, you recover from it, you become immune to it, and then it can't come back to you. So it's it's like a relay race where you've got to continually hand on the baton. So if you break that chain of transmission, numbers of cases must fall. But once you get to very low levels of circulation, there is the possibility that it falls below the limit of detection. There are still cases smouldering in various places. But when you would withdraw those various measures which were keeping it suppressed and breaking the chain of transmission and you go back to what normal was, then you restore all those opportunities. And if there is virus still smouldering, still circulating at low level, it's then afforded the opportunity to begin to spread again. And that's why you can then get second and subsequent waves of virus and they can take off quite quickly because by then everyone's a bit more complacent and they think it's all fine, it's gone and then it comes roaring back. Often this coincides with winter time as well, because at those times you also tend to see other kinds of viruses coming and people may mistake your symptoms for, oh, it's it's a flu or something, which, you know, we get that at this time of year. Also people go indoors more, it's less sunny, and all of these factors mean that it's easier for virus to spread. And so that's what we're, we're worried about in the, the present instance and what we'll be being vigilant for. Here's a question. Early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, there were reports that people with blood group A were being more severely impacted by the disease. Can I ask you if there has been any further understanding about this, please? It's certainly a documented observation and it's been corroborated in a number of places. The initial data from China was to ask the simple question, well, what frequency is each blood group in the population? And if we then look at the people with very severe coronavirus disease, do we see the same fraction of those in terms of blood groups as we do in the general population? Or is there a disparity? Because if there's a disparity, it argues that perhaps one blood group is relatively protected or relatively more vulnerable. And when they did this, what they found is that blood group A, when you look at people in the population who have blood group A and compare them to the representation of that blood group in hospitalised patients, the hospitalised patients with blood group A were cropping up maybe 10% or so more often of the time than they should do, based on averages. And people with blood group O were cropping up 
a bit less often to compensate than they should do. And what that tells us is that blood group A seems to be a relative risk factor for getting more severe disease and blood group O a relative protective factor for getting severe disease. It's not only associated with this new coronavirus, though, that we see this phenomenon. It's been documented for other inflammatory diseases as well. I asked an intensive care physician if she knew why this might be happening a couple of months ago, and, and she said, we've documented this before. We don't know why this happens. It could be that there are other functions, other genes, which are located alongside the genes which determine blood group, and perhaps they're part of the equation, or it's something specifically to do with with markers on the cells themselves. At the moment, the jury is out. We just know it's there as an effect. It's a modest effect, but it's uh, it's not a massive effect. It's a modest effect, but it's definitely an effect. Could you update us on the vaccine progress, please? Certainly. And um, around the world now, there are more than 100 projects trying to develop vaccines against the new coronavirus. About half of them are in the US. The other half are distributed across most of the developed countries in the world. And they're, they're exploring a whole range of different strategies, more than 10 different types of vaccine or vaccination type project or passive immunity project, which means trying to make antibodies that you could put into people uh, are, are being pursued. And it's very good that uh, lots of different groups working in different ways are all pursuing this from different directions. Because if you ask a pharmaceutical company, what they'll say to you is that when they set out down the path of developing any kind of therapeutic, 90% of the time, they will fail. Now, that doesn't mean they're bad at science. It doesn't mean they're not very good at what they do. It means the problem they're trying to solve is very tough and it's hard work and it's expensive. And therefore, the more rolls of the dice we have in this game, the better the odds that we're going to find a vaccine that's going to work. There are some some early contenders. And in recent weeks, we've seen a couple of papers that have been quite interesting. Uh, Before I focus on the Chinese one, there's been a lot of attention focused on the University of Oxford, the Jenner uh, Institute, where Sarah Gilbert and her team have, uh, to some fanfare, announced um, about a month ago that they were beginning to put a vaccine into people in a human trial, which initially they started with about a 1,000 people. They've now scaled that up to 10,000 people across the full spectrum of ages. In the meantime, they've sent samples of their vaccine to the States, and in the States it's been put into monkeys with the aim of testing how effective this really is. Because the trial that they're doing in Oxford, what it is, is a placebo, sorry, it's a controlled trial. They've got a placebo group who they're giving a meningitis vaccine to, and then they've got an intervention group who are getting the real deal, but no one knows who's getting what. And what it relies on is that those people who get vaccinated will encounter the naturally circulating infection. And what they'll be looking for is an excess of infections in the control group compared to a minimum number of infections in the intervention group, thus proving that there is some efficacy, some effectiveness of of their vaccine. In the meantime, they've done this study in the monkeys where what you can't do in humans is actively expose them to the virus. This would be unethical, so they're relying on nature taking its course. But in the monkeys, you can do this. And so they vaccinated these monkeys with this this, um, viral uh, structure that they put together, that's the vaccine, and then they challenged the monkeys with SARS-CoV-2, the cause of covid And it was a bit disappointing in some respects because what they were hoping is that the monkeys would be protected completely from infection 
But that didn't happen. The monkeys still caught the infection and they could recover quite high levels of virus from the noses of these animals. What was encouraging, on the other hand, was that they didn't, any of them, develop severe damage to their lungs when they had had the vaccine compared with animals that hadn't, that did. So it looks like what they might have there on their hands is a vaccine that will prevent people developing severe disease but it won't stop them actually catching the infection. More work obviously needs to be done to explore why that is. The other paper that was published recently was exploring a quite different vaccine which uh, was, was being tested in people in China and that one uses a common cold virus to express a chunk of the SARS coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, the cause of the new infection. And they found that uh, their pe- that the people in their study, but it was a small group, only 100 or so people, wasn't blinded or anything, so they just put this into people and then tested them. And they didn't test them with challenge against the virus, they just tested whether they made a response to the vaccine. And the people in that study did make antibodies. They did make antibodies that bound to the right bit of the virus. They also made blood cell responses of uh, T-cells. These are the white blood cells that fight off infections, which we also judge to be very important. So there's two quite different approaches. The Chinese one where they used a, a common cold virus versus the Oxford one where they've used a chimpanzee cold virus, which has been disabled so it can't grow and just makes a chunk of the SARS-CoV-2 agent on its surface. So they're sort of similar but different and they've, they've both elicited immune responses. The Oxford one little bit of a disappointment this week. Let us talk about COVID-19 and eyesight, which has been in the news on account of Dominic Cummings saying um, he had to drive to test whether his eyesight was up to driving. And Boris Johnson, who also said it had affected his eyesight, is there any evidence that it does affect your eyes? Not really. The evidence we have that it can infect your eyes is there. And in the same way that influenza viruses can sometimes cause conjunctivitis because the virus can infect the tissue on the fronts of the eyes and the white bits of your eyes, that is possibly also true with this coronavirus. And there have been reports of conjunctivitis, viral conjunctivitis in some cases. There are also signs that this virus, under certain rare circumstances, can also get into the retina and may attack the retina and as well as other bits of the central nervous system. Now, both of those situations could lead to changes in vision because if you've got conjunctivitis, it's going to make your eyes red, sore and watery and that may affect vision. If you get retinal damage, then that's obviously going to affect vision, but that would be really rather noticeable. Whether or not it would just cause a situation where you'd think, well, maybe I need an eye test, maybe I don't, and you're unsure, pretty unlikely, to be honest with you. So the the evidence is not really there that it's going to cause demonstrable changes to eyesight. It, It definitely can lead to infection on the front parts of the eye, though, and that can lead to some soreness, which might lead people to say that their their eyes have been affected in some way. But I don't think there's objective evidence that it does anything to vision. And most medical professionals, not pharmacologists, agree that's the case. Did I read that England was reporting 8,000 new infections a day? That can't be right, can it? Uh, That's the estimate. At the Downing Street press conference yesterday, the data that were presented and the way they arrive at these numbers is that the Office for National Statistics, the ONS, have got various surveillance studies ongoing. Uh, These are called sentinel studies. And what they do is they test uh, certain numbers of people 
who are a representative sample and then they extrapolate this to the population as a whole. And based on their pickup rates, they estimate that between eight and 10,000 people a day are currently contracting the coronavirus. The current point prevalence is about 0.24% in the UK, which is between eight and 10,000 people per day who are currently passing it on. So herd immunity, should that continue, will happen when? It's going to take a while because there's more than 65 million people in the country and the current antibody testing that we've done predicts that probably somewhere between 5 and 10% of the population, so 10% London because it's a bit more of a hotbed of transmission or was historically, but 5% elsewhere, so call it 7% of the country appear to have antibodies and we assume therefore that they've been exposed to the new virus and they've become immune to it. That means that more than 60 million people remain vulnerable and at 8,000 people a day you can see that it's going to take many, many years, actually um, several years before you'll actually get to the point where an appreciable number of people have had it because that's 8,000 a day but it's not rising, it's not growing exponentially. It's it's stayed with an R value, the reproductive number, of uh, just less than one so that 8,000 is, is slowly dwindling away. So the virus is still transmitting but it's transmitting increasingly slowly and therefore it will eventually fizzle out, it won't accelerate. That's the hope anyway. Some comparative death rates per capita published this week showed that Sweden was the highest in the world, followed by Brazil and then Peru and then the UK and the US, not far behind. Does this show that the herd immunity approach being practised in Sweden is definitely not working? Well, it's very, very difficult to know exactly where we stand. Some critics, including uh, people who were initially supportive of Sweden's stance, which has been to observe things like social distancing but not to put their country into a lockdown, their rationale being that this will preserve the economy, although current economic estimates suggest the economy is probably going to be down about 6% or so this year. Um, what, what that's actually suggesting from various quarters is that actually maybe it was the wrong approach. Others say we're going to all arrive at the same point eventually. It's just going to be different how, how we get there. The route taken will be different. And to this end, Chris Whitty, who's the UK's chief medical advisor, has said many times that actually the metric we need to be looking at is the excess mortality. And we do that at the end of the year because that will tell us really how many excess deaths there are over and above what we would anticipate for the mortality rate over the year and we obviously would have a hard time saying that that wasn't related to coronavirus we can then top this up and directly compare country by country because the way in which these statistics are being gathered processed presented the rates at which diseases are spreading through countries everyone's at different stages of their outbreaks and so on makes it really very challenging to compare country by country very meaningfully and one could draw false conclusions or jump to conclusions which may be misleading so they're trying to urge people to deal with the here and now and uh, worry about at the end of the year how the numbers stack up when we're kind of doing the virological post-mortem on who we have or haven't lost in a country to inform how we cope with this either going forward or for the next time because people are already thinking about the next time hydroxychloroquine i'm still getting questions about that somebody asked whether 
there is any value in taking hydroxychloroquine and vitamins to protect or even stop the advancement of COVID-19 if you already have it. Any views on that? Well, last week when we talked about this, the Lancet had published a study which was pretty damning of hydroxychloroquine and was sufficient to provoke the World Health Organization to call a halt on any trials that were going on into the possible effectiveness of this as a therapy for coronavirus. Since that study came out, um, a number of scientists have written to the Lancet offering further critique of the methodology in the study, calling into question its conclusions. But at the moment, though, it's still very early days. There isn't any kind of certain robust evidence around the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine or its chemical relative chloroquine. So at this stage, probably the interpretation remains that while there might be a theoretical benefit, there might be a so-called in vitro benefit when you grow cells in a dish and infect them with virus and put this drug onto them, actually it doesn't translate into the same overall risk-benefit ratio in, in a living person because there are always side effects with every drug and one of them is heart complaints and heart problems and disturbance of heart rhythm. So it's not clear that there's a net benefit at the moment. Jury's still out, but it does look like really the feeling is turning away from hydroxychloroquine as, as a therapeutic for this. Somebody says, for all there is to know about this coronavirus, how much do we know to date are we actually still in the early learning stages of understanding it? Uh, there's a huge number of questions that remain and really people's attention now is focusing on the bizarre things this does to your immune system. It's just extraordinary. And uh, as one person put it to me last week, this is a very weird virus. Another person said this is probably the weirdest infection we've seen ever. Um, and another person is this because of the long tail and the associated symptoms? Precisely, because we we pretty much understand the trajectory now, which is we understand the incubation period. It's as short as a day. It might be as long as eleven days, so we use fourteen days to be safe. The average is about five days. People then develop vague symptoms. They get worse for about a week. Then, if they're going to get really bad, they start to deteriorate, or they turn the corner if they're not going to get really bad. And they will often present with very low levels of oxygen in the bloodstream, evidence of quite bad injury to lung tissue, which on CT scan or chest X-ray you can see, and it's quite characteristic for this. And we think that's, that's the virus attacking lung tissue. And then this further phase kicks in, which appears to be driven by the immune system. And it appears to be some kind of cytokine storm effect, whereby something about this infection deregulates the immune response and it starts to lead to almost a positive feedback loop where inflammation begets more inflammation and this then leads to more damage to more organs and this becomes almost a multi-organ disorder and you get damage in the lungs, you get damage in the heart, you can get damage in the kidneys, in some people it goes into the nervous system and it also attacks the linings of blood vessels it would appear it attacks the immune system and causes a depletion in some elements of the immune system, which perhaps then makes actually regulating this inflammation harder because the immune system is now fighting with an arm tied behind its back because it can't regulate itself properly. And all these things compound and ultimately it puts some patients into a tailspin, which is very hard to get them out of. And we just don't know why this happens and why there's this enormous spectrum because on the one end you've got... We're now being told by some sources 
more than half of patients catching this having no symptoms whatsoever, right through to uh, you know people having a terminal illness with this. And okay, they're in the minority, maybe 1% of people, but that's a big number. And that's such a broad range that we just don't understand why there is. And so there's now enormous amount of research focusing on why the immune system goes into this terminal tailspin and how we intervene to pull people out of that before it begins to bite and whether we can spot the people who are most at risk. And there was one intriguing observation, which was the, the possible genetic contribution that was also published in the last week. Yes. Tell us a little more about that now. Well, we actually spoke to David Melzer, who's the researcher at Exeter, who spotted that you know there's a lot of activity going on in care homes. And if you look at a lot of the victims in care homes, they had dementia. So one might jump to the conclusion, oh, it's because of dementia. And there's something about having dementia that leads you to get severe coronavirus disease. And that's also why we've got a lot of activity in care homes, because a lot of people in care homes have dementia. They're there because they need more, more help and more care. But actually, one independent risk factor for dementia is a particular gene type called ApoE. And apolipoprotein E is involved in moving lipids or fats around in the bloodstream and controlling your lipid metabolism. And the genes that give you this particular ApoE receptor come in one of three flavours. There's ApoE2, ApoE3 or ApoE4. Those are the different so-called gene alleles. And you can have a number of different combinations of them. You can have two copies of the number two gene, two copies of the number three gene or two copies of the number four gene or any other combination between. And if you have two copies of the ApoE4 form of the gene, you're much more likely to get dementia. But interestingly, you're also much more likely to get severe coronavirus disease. And it's nothing to do with the dementia because the researchers were able to go to the UK Biobank, which is a resource with more than half a million specimens in it, donated by people over a long period of time with all their clinical data and samples stored and DNA barcodes and so on. And they can show that people who don't yet have dementia but have this higher risk type of genetic makeup are more than double the likelihood of getting coronavirus severely than people who don't have that. And that's really intriguing because it suggests there's something about lipids and how you manage fats and, and things in your body that's maybe also feeding into the inflammatory process and um, maybe how you handle cholesterol, for example. And so that's a, another fertile area now for looking at. Three questions about what recovered means. They're around whether there is any evidence of long-term effects in recovered people or people who got a mild dose only. Any evidence? Well, uh, in some of the people who get a very mild dose, of course, don't forget that uh, 16% of people, their only symptom is they lose their sense of smell. And that translates also into a loss of taste sensation. And in more than a, an appreciable number, maybe 16 to 20% of those people, they haven't got their sense of smell back after a couple of months. So there may be one long-term consequence, which is that. Uh, other people who recover, recover uneventfully, and they say... Well, that was, you know, a bit of a bad week, but I'm I'm fine now. And, you know, if you look at uh, lots of politicians in the UK who managed probably to catch this off each other, have all recovered and they're back in their jobs. And then there are other people who have a much stormier course and it seems to drag on for a longer period of time. I, I suspect they're probably part of a, a long wedge, as it were. And they're at the thinner end of that wedge. 
and perhaps this is all part of this immune dysregulation that goes on when you when you have this but people are now beginning to study these people and follow them up and try to put together their clinical outcome with the underlying biochemistry and possibly cell counts and also genetics as well so there's big studies now being done to try to marry all these observations together and we've never been in a position where we've had such a rich supply of data to study an outbreak like this so it's fascinating but but very unpleasant at the same time sure let's try and squish in another question you were talking about the test of a country's tactics against covid-19 will be told when the excess deaths are tallied up. Wendy asks, what processes are in place to distinguish at the end of the year which excess deaths are directly related to the coronavirus and which are related to the disruption to regular health services such as elective surgery and cancer screening during lockdown? Very good question. Yeah, and that's going to take some disentangling because there will be primary deaths which are I died of coronavirus versus secondary deaths which were I died of a heart attack waiting for an ambulance to take me to hospital because uh, other people had used all the ambulances because they had coronavirus and other people who who ended up stuck in the community not having their chemotherapy for their cancer. Uh, there will be ways of disentangling this and the Office for National Statistics in the UK is, is well beating at this and they, they will be pursuing these sorts of things to get very clear signals on this as will other countries as well to try and unpick those sorts of numbers but it, it's going to take a, take a while. It's certainly not something you, you instantly magic, magic up these numbers but they are collecting them very carefully and looking at this because it obviously has enormous knock-on consequences. Thank you, Chris. Dr Chris Smith. Our consultant virologist. 